What we had was uh, literally a race. The, the militia is desperate to get to that down helicopter because it's a huge propaganda coup for them. We're desperate to get there because we got our guys there. And at this point, we don't know if any of them survived. We had got Jamie in there. Woody was working on him, and we got hit with an RPG. Yep. Huge explosion. We hear women and kids inside that building. So I grabbed Larry, and we had never done CQB together. And I said, all right, LT. You, go, you ready? I go, yeah. I'm going to kick in the door. You go left. I'll go right, or whatever I said. And I said, don't shoot me. I won't. <laughs> and that was, our, that was our CQB training at that point. Hi, and welcome to The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. Each episode includes a single interview with guests who walk us through a particular event and their role in it. A battle, a firefight, a mission. It's a first-person account of combat. This episode is part two of a conversation that we started in the last episode. MWI's Jake Moraldi is back with our three guests, Larry Perino, Lee Van Arsdale, and Kyle Lamb and they continue talking about their experiences during the Battle of Mogadishu. Of course, that's an incident made famous by Mark Bowden's book, Black Hawk Down, and the movie of the same name. But again, even if you've read the book or seen the film, this podcast offers a very unique experience. Hearing three practitioners from elite army units describe what happened during the fight, but more importantly, what they were thinking and feeling during really key moments of the battle. Now, if you're a new listener and you haven't yet heard part one, I would highly recommend going and listening to that episode first and then coming back to listen to part two. Once you've heard the first part, you'll know what happened in the lead up to the battle, how all of these moving parts got set in motion, and what happened when the first helicopter was shot down. We left off just as ground units started moving to that helicopter and came under fire from militia fighters all around them. That's where we pick up in part two. Before we get to the episode, really quickly, just a couple notes. First, if you're enjoying The Spear, be sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a free moment or two, we would really appreciate it if you'd give us a rating or leave a review. And second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's part two of the Battle of Mogadishu. So we started moving up to the crash site. When we turned up that street, that's when things got... I remember it, we turned left yep. to yep. head, and it started sloping downhill towards the crash site. Remember, we went to the top, yep. and it was like you ran into a wall of, of gunfire. And, and the guys were, you know, Tom was already at the crash, Dito and his guys were already at the crash site, along with the guys from the Sarbird. They were already, they were already shooting. And it, it was... What we had was uh, literally a race. The, the militia is desperate to get to that down helicopter because it's a huge propaganda coup for them. We're desperate to get there because we got our guys there. And at this point, we don't know if any of them survived. As it turns out, the pilot and co-pilot both died, but the two crew chiefs and four snipers in the back of the Blackhawk all survived. Mm -hmm. So nobody knew any of that time. We just knew we had our guys there. And so we had this desperate race, which we won. We got the Sarbird and the first chalk there almost simultaneously one hair ahead of the first militia people running there. Okay. And when that fire started hitting uh, Larry's guys from the front, and we're right behind him, I mean we're 20 yards behind him or 10 yards or whatever, and, and by the time we got up there we were even closer, we were intermingled 
because uh, I was right beside y'all. Because yeah, because we're leapfrogging each other yeah, as right. we're going up. The the the. the the issue is in a in that urban environment, you can't use suppressive fire because we don't we got guys down there. We can't just take a machine gun and hose down this alleyway because there's somebody. Th yeah, there's there's good guys there. So uh, one of our guys, our team leader, had a ACOG on his rifle, mm -hmm. which at the time nobody even knew what that was, mm -hmm. and that allowed him to see back into the dark spaces a little bit better. That's what John Hale had on his gun, and he could he was helping to pinpoint a little bit more. Sure. Oh, there's a guy there. At that point, though, we. Earl Fillmore had been laying beside me. We had moved up there. He goes, okay, you guys go. Well, we got up and went, Woody and I, and when we moved, we didn't know it, but Earl had been killed behind us. He had caught a, a, a ricochet off of a wall, and we had plastic hockey-type helmets on, and that round had, had, had killed him immediately. So the team leader and the rest of the guys on the team were having to deal with him, trying to get him out of the street. What was going on with us, and I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about um, Jamie there, kind of how it well, was. Just before, because I remember seeing, I looked back, and I, I actually saw Earl go down. Yes, I didn't see that. I saw it, and I remember looking, guys were on him, and then I moved ahead up front. Um, and we were, like, right at the corner. Now we're at the corner. So if you imagine, it's a four-way intersection, a really narrow road about the width of a black hawk is there so if you turn right there's super six one just on the did other you know it was there no i didn't either I, we were we're 10 yards from it we didn't can't see it had no idea that it was right there no, uh, and and by that time i was right there with you well yeah it's true because i'm laying outside there's a corrugated Okay, corrugated tin does not stop bullets. But um, <laughs> there was a step, and Jamie Smith was one of my team leaders and was, was, was shooting. And this, this Somali down the street was poking his head out behind a car. And I, I moved up, and right before I moved up, I remember you guys went right over my back, right into that courtyard, that small courtyard. Say it's a courtyard. It was basically the size of this room. Mm -hmm. And you were clearing it, and I remember uh, you know, po point to Jamie, and that's where bullets went through, and that's what hit Jamie in the thigh. And yeah, I so when it was just Woody and I, we were the only two guys that were remaining from our team. So we had, that only took a second, because the courtyard was, there's nothing there. Um, well, we would find out later, I guess you and I would find out later, there was more people there. But when Jamie got hit, I, I was right there with him to apply direct pressure, and then you and Woody pulled him in. So, so uh, Jamie... Uh, uh, Smith, he was a corporal. Yeah, he uh, big guy, mm -hmm. two hundred three gunner. So, you know, I think that's something that you you kind of train for, but you probably don't train enough for. You know, what's it like to move a real casualty, not somebody that's helping? He was trying to help, but he's he's got hit high in the femoral artery. It also had shattered his pelvis, so there's there's not there's no stability yeah, there's, there. There's not a lot he can his do. His left to side, help. his left side. Yeah. I mean, he almost started going to shock, almost immediately. Yeah, when and you know the the thing about that is we when when we pulled him inside, Chuck Elliott was still outside behind that corrugated metal pulling yep. security. Once again, that's not going to stop bullets, but he's doing the right thing to to help us. We moved Jamie just inside of that. Right in, not in the courtyard yet, but right where it was narrow. Doorway, yeah. We started working on it, and we're like, I was seeing rounds hit the wall beside us. And it wasn't like, you know, sporadic. There was a group being shot on this wall. So whoever was doing it, was they were aiming a bit. 
we ended up pulling him back kind of around that corner. Yep. And uh, Well, it was kind of a funny, because uh, I remember uh, uh, Doug Bourne, who was one of my team leaders, and Chuck Elliott were, were, were out there shooting. Yeah. And, and, and I think you may have said, somebody said, I go, hey, guys, you might want to get in here and get cover. Yeah. And it was, some, it was one of those... <laughs> A bunch of rounds. The next thing you know, both of those guys came diving in, right behind us. <laughs> and we, when so when we, I was working on Jamie there. Woody and I were both working on him, and and uh, you know that's one of the things that at at this point, you know, we didn't have combat gauze, mm-hmm. we didn't Drain carry dressings, tourniquets. You know, it was very basic stuff. The only thing that we could do to slow the bleeding was direct pressure. So mm-hmm. we would take our fingers, and well. The medic member did blunt dissection. That took a. That yeah, was a while yeah. to get him over. The medic didn't show up till yeah. later. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And couldn't couldn't get to the femoral. So basically, we were trading places, putting our fingers. I was, yeah, I was yeah. trading off. And we would we would hold direct pressure until you couldn't hold it anymore, and then you would take your chest and lay it on your hands to keep that pressure. And then once you couldn't do it, we'd swap out with the next guy. But Jamie talked to me then. He said, uh, "Am I going to be all right?" And I looked him right in the eye and I said, hey, partner, you're going to be fine. Because I felt like at that point, we're still, even though all this is going on, that we hadn't come down to the point where we're like, oh, crap. This is, that we're not going to survive this or we're going to get, you know, we're, that, we're still riding that high of we're in the fight. We're doing what we're supposed to do. I'm treating him and I, I don't want this to sound callous, but, but this is just a true statement. When you're working on somebody that you don't know, it's a whole lot easier than you're working on somebody that you know. And I'd, I'd seen him around, but he wasn't, he wasn't a buddy of mine. So my perspective and Larry's perspective is a bit different, I would say, at that point, because I'm working on a casualty. For Larry, he's working on his, his guy. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that gets to the question I was going to ask, which is, right, we've talked through a bunch of stuff, right? The, everything's going good. The helicopter goes down. We're moving to the crash site. We hit a wall of bullets. We're taking casualties. I mean, does this still, at the point that we just kind of ended up, feel unexceptional? Are we still kind of in a place where this is not a crisis yet? We it, it hasn't crescendoed, um, as you said before. Um, it was a little bit. It wasn't. I was fine. You know, feeling that way, like, oh man, this is really bad. It was really when, even when we hit that wall of lead, and I watched. Earl go down my before even Earl got shot my my for my forward observer gets shot you know wounded you all right yeah where'd he hit you right in the ass it was just almost like he was in a you know you're fine so I'm seeing him like scoot into okay he's fine he's and I just didn't didn't hit me it, it was it was actually working on uh, Jamie I was like oof this is this yeah, is getting a little, little tight yeah. and, and you know the I think there's there's a lot of different perspectives and for, for Larry and I, the perspective is relatively the same because we were looking through the, the same so toilet try. paper tubes mm-hmm. that, because we were together that day. Um, you talk to other guys on the other side of the street, they're seeing something different. But for us, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong how this kind of laid out, but we had got Jamie in there. Woody was working on him and we got hit with an RPG. Yep. Huge explosion. We hear women and kids inside that building. So I grabbed Larry and we had never done CQB together. And I said, all right, LT. You go, you ready? I go, I'm going to kick in the door. You go left. I'll go right or whatever I said. And I said, don't shoot me. I won't. (laughs) And that was our, that was our CQB training at that point. 
we went in there, we cleared like a couple rooms and we pushed the women and children back into another little room. And at that point, now this is, this is minutes into it, maybe 15 minutes or more, I don't know, it, it was a while. I still didn't know that Super 6-1 was on the other side of the wall. Nope, me neither. It wasn't we, until that night. Yeah, so at that night we finally kicked open a door, kicked open a window, we realized the bird is laying right there. Um, and I think that that's when when things started to get real because we like we can't exfil. And the reason we didn't exfil was because we weren't gonna leave the bodies of, of Cliff and uh, Donovan. Yeah, there, they, they were, there's no way we're gonna do that because Cl Cliff's body was crushed inside that aircraft. We couldn't get his body out. So we had to wait for additional tools to do that. And um, I don't know what, what else is there anything else to cover? But but at that point, I think that's I think that's interesting, right? You say, hey, we we can't get these guys out of the helicopter. We need to stay here. And and I am imagining that there's the realization of what that means, um, which is the whole world is probably if they're not already here, the whole world is probably coming down on this little plaza I, I shortly. There's there's two ways to look at that though. I think first my attitude probably had changed by this point because. I had I had ex kind of accepted the fact that we we were kind of we were probably going to get overrun, mm -hmm. and I'm not saying that I was courageous. I actually was praying. I'm a Christian, and I was praying. And I was wasn't praying to be a hero. I was praying like, Lord, don't let me die like a coward here because this is. I was scared to death. Um, after I did that, everything was fine, mm -hmm. and. I'm not saying I still wasn't scared, but I'm just saying that it was, it kind of changed my attitude. And then it was like, okay, let's just do what we got to do. We got to work on Jamie. And we kept him alive well into the night. He ended up passing away once we had moved him up inside of another Yeah, building. about 2000 is when it happened. Um, my site, I never had that feeling, me personally. I, I don't know why. I, mine was, it was a struggle for trying to figure out what was going on identifying where all my people were I always thought that the, you know where's the ground convoy you know and so there you know there's all parts of this episode that I've missed you know while we're sitting in there and I don't have visibility um, I think just for part of that's as a leader I, I wasn't a leader yeah I was I was just a dude on the battlefield watching my sights and I think as a leader you have and, I, and I'm what I'm getting at here is I went on to, to do this as a leader and I think when you're working as a leader, you're, you're more concerned with your people than you are with yourself. And I can see where you're sitting there and you're getting calls from the commander. You're getting this, you're getting that. I, I don't have any of that. Yeah, you have no I'm on the assault freak. I'm hearing what's going on there. That's, that's my only link to the world. And it's, you know, and some of that was good and some of it was bad. And I think that's one of the things I kind of skipped over was there was a call that came from the commander, from our, our ground force commander. And he said, uh, he called Alpha One, which was John Hale, and he said, hey, send me your status. And then I heard John Hale say, we got this many wounded and one KIA. When I heard that, and once again, being honest, didn't bother me. Because if, if it's a KIA, it's a Ranger. That's how, I'm, that's how I'm making this okay in my mind. Once again, I'm not trying to be, I'm not saying the Rangers are less important. I'm just saying when you don't know that person, you can you can separate yourself from it and stay in the fight, uh, but then when the commander called again, Scott Miller called up on he was captain at the time he called up and said, uh, "Hey Alpha One, say again your status." He tells him he goes, "What's the call sign of the KIA?" And he said Alpha Two. When he said Alpha Two, we all knew that it was Earl Fillmore, and that's like, 
now it's Three. we're not six foot tall and or mm -hmm. ten foot tall and bulletproof. We're 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 real. And and I don't know if you ever heard that call because you weren't on our assault. No, I wasn't on the assault. So he's hearing stuff on their side, which they're getting all the mayhem that's going on on the ranger side. We're getting the mayhem that's going on 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 the unit side there. Even though we're intermixed. Yeah, we're intermixed. It, it, and really, I, I I don't know. I mean, if all things went well, that probably would have been fine. At that point, I was getting enough information mm -hmm. as a as just a guy with a gun. I had plenty of information because I knew that I just had to worry about this right here until somebody grabbed me and said, hey, we're moving. I was going to do what I was or work on Jamie. I mean, that's really what that's kind of where Full security or work on Jamie. That's yeah, that, that was our that was what we we're going to do for the rest of our lives. You know what I mean? Um, My issue was the only thing that kept me I was like, wow. What can I do right now? I mean, because I, I can't get the information. Yeah. What's going on? Half my platoon is, you know, I'm with two guys now. My platoon is split. And the only thing I goes, okay. The guy with the neck injury was that there was, with that us. Was, that was Doug Bourne. That was okay. one of my other guy. He wasn't originally with us. He was with my, yeah. somehow he got mixed up with us because he had a graze wound on his Yeah, neck. by that time we got there, he already had a bandit. I'm like, what's up with this cat? He's he got, got shot up at the target. Yeah. He got he got wounded at the target. Uh, but I, I, my own thing, I just, just, just for me personally, I, I would go, well, I can't panic. Because if I go panic, there's nothing good that's going to happen yeah. by panicking. It's going to make it worse on everybody. And it's not like, you know, uh, with appearances, I honestly thought, you know, if, if there's nothing else, I can just try to be as calm as possible just for anything else. Yeah, and, and I think that's what, for, for me as a dude looking at a ranger, you know, we, we looked at these guys. I looked at, at Larry and I'm like, the dude's, I mean, he's on it. He's doing what he's got to do. The only thing I felt like was I felt like you were getting harassed a little bit from your commander. It was. He was telling me, hey, come back to my location. And uh, we're like, dude, no, you can't, we, you know, and we're kind of telling him like, <laughs> turn off, you know, whatever. We never said turn off your radio, but he, he never thought like, yeah, we're going to pick up and move to somebody else's location. We got a, a 200 pound dude here that is, is now unconscious. And you don't even know what his location is at this point in time. Yeah. Well, I knew somewhere behind me. Yeah. All, all I knew was, and, and, and I was fine, but I was also hearing from my platoon sergeant who was with him. It's like, hey, you're fine there, sir. <laughs> it was basically, hey, you're fine there, sir. And I'm like, oh, good, because I'm not moving. I'm, I'm, I'm good right here. But besides, we were all securing that corner, too. And that would have pulled all the combat power from where folks were. Yeah, 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 because we were shooting bad guys as they were coming down the street and across there. And, and once again, we, the bird was right beside us. We were running low on ammo, so uh, a guy named uh, Coltrip, Captain Coltrip at the time, he jumped out of a window from his side. we didn't even know he was there. He jumped out onto a piece of corrugated steel. They started shooting at him. He goes underneath the bird, gets Dan Bush's extra ammo. Dan Bush was one of our guys that was was killed at that crash site. He got out to fight against the bad guys with his saw, and end up catching around behind his his vest and didn't survive. So he got that ammo out and brought that ammo over to us at our window. Same thing, still getting shot at, and. You know, and I think where, that's... Where'd you come from? <laughs> yeah, and really that's kind of what it was. But you, you, and, and here's, here's another thing that you got to, as a leader or as a guy, you, you don't know. When you look across the crowd of faces that are standing in front of you, you can take the biggest, baddest dude and you can take the, the, the other guy that is not the biggest and baddest dude that's just like unassuming. You don't know how any of those guys are going to act in combat. And that's one thing I'd like to say about 
Captain Coltrip at the time, he was very unassuming, but he was a friggin' superhero out there in the street. You know what I mean? So, and I, and I think maybe later on in my career, seeing other people like that, the guys full of bravado versus the guy that is this, the quiet professional, you know, normally the, the bravado guy, you're kind of like, where'd he go? You know, the, the quiet guy is the guy that you can probably, probably depend on a little bit and, more. And one of the ironies is Bill Coltrip was on the Sarbird which was like the worst job for anybody to have because those guys just went out and flew around and never did anything while Doing everyone donuts. else was down the street. <laughs> they, they turned out the, that, that entire crew was a, a group of heroes. Yeah, yeah, medics, and I think it was Bob Mabry was one of those medics, right? Those was he one of the guys that went in there? Uh, I think he I think was so. on the Sarbird. We I think the he was. He's on yeah. the Sarbird. Now he's a doctor, yeah. yeah. I mean, and even the pilots, that whole crew, because you can even see it on video when the 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 SAR bird was roping and they had still a couple guys on the bird they got hit in the tail boom mm -hmm. with an RPG round and uh, I remember they're about to hit the they're about to lift off and the crew chief told them hold it yeah, and they held it steady the until the last guy hit the ground and then hit the slap handle wound up flying it to the edge of the the runway almost hard landing hopped out ran to the spare mm -hmm. That was yeah. Dan Gelato was a pilot yeah. there, and, and most people don't know, we had five helicopters shot down that day, uh, most people are aware of two, because the other three limped back to the airfield. Yeah, 6-2 crashed in the port, uh, hard landed in the port, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. Yeah, and the pilots, you know, it's funny, we, we always give the Air Force guys a hard time because they want crew rest. Those pilots flew, I want to say, for 18 hours, yeah. the, the AH pilots, 18 hours. The only thing they do, they get back, they grab a bottle of water, maybe something to chew on, and then they'd get gassed up and more ammo. Bullets. And, and they were coming right back out to help us out. So when you, if you want to look at what, to me, what kind of kept us going was we had the biggest, baddest helicopters, which are the smallest ones on the planet, <laughs> doing the most devastation to the bad guys around us. We could take pot shots, but when they come in with that six-barrel minigun and 17-pounders and start lighting them up literally across the street from us, it was, you were talking last night about how the brass, I kind of forgot about that, but the brass raining down on our heads, that's, you're pretty close when that's happening, so. Um, and, and so the, it kind of was like that. So we had, you know, uh, you know Jamie Smith is working, um, I'm calling, hey look, this guy, and I'm even, even that's when the doc was starting. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, hey, and we had Kurt Schmidt, he ran across the street to us, and it was like something out of a cowboy movie. He's running and there's dirt flying up by his feet. Thank goodness they didn't know how to lead him or whatever. But uh, Kurt Schmidt ran out there and and he started working as a medic. And he, on he's like he's saying, "Hey man, you better call. We got to get this guy out of here." And you know, doing. I'd like to. Sorry, can't. That was a hard one. And mm -hmm. then finally, just kind of said, "Okay." At about eight thirty, it's like too late. Um, but we we had we kind of secured that. And if you know. And, I'm not driving this thing, but that that probably understanding what's going on back at the base to be able to kind of because that how they how you guys mobilized the the convoy to come back out to us. Yeah, so that was a that was a multi-step uh, process as it turned out. So all these guys are doing all that. I was back in the jock, and earlier we said this this was a textbook operation. Even with Kyle's team getting put down at the wrong place, those things always happen. And, and we were going off grainy overhead photos. What and, was and your, your official job title? I, I was the officer in charge of the jock, which okay. really, you know, it sounds impressive, but it sucks because I'd been in C-Squadron, so those were my boys out there, mm -hmm. and I'm in the jock, 
making sure General Garrison has hot coffee. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you were doing a little bit more. Than <laughs> a little that. bit more than that. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit more. Than just that. a little bit. There was but once once the the first helo got shot down. General Garrison said we just lost the initiative. You know, it just and and that's true. We had the initiative, and it only took 20 minutes to go in, clear the target, get the Rangers in. Uh, get the get the ground convoy up to load everybody up. So we had the two key lieutenants, all their bodyguards. These guys are all flex cuffed. We're getting them out of there, and then uh, Cliff Walcott gets shot down. So that completely changed the initiative. But as we said earlier, we had contingency plans for that. So one of those was the 10th Mountain Division Quick Reaction Force. Mm -hmm. So as soon as the bird went down, General Garrison called for them. Uh, they came from their position. They were at a different location than us in Mogadishu. So they came to our position, just took a few minutes, and uh, General Garrison told me to go with them. And that, that was my instructions and the commander's intent, go with them. Go with so them. I, I, I knew that, okay, I'm to go with them and develop the situation, however. So we went out one time in their unarmored Humvees and uh, drove right into a pretty well-laid ambush. and. Uh, the the uh, commander decided, let's go back and uh, rethink this plan. So the next time out, we had Malaysian armored personnel carriers and Pakistani tanks. From the UN. And uh, had, had 10th Mountain Division now figured out we better start sandbagging our Humvees and uh, do something to make them a little more bulletproof. So while this, this is going on with Kyle and Larry, then I'm out there with the 10th Mountain Division. By now we've got two downed helicopters. Mike Durant got his shot down about a mile away from Cliffs. So uh, the Ranger LNO to the 10th Mountain Division, Craig Nixon, came up with a plan on the spot, which is we establish a rally point equidistant between these two, and we send one company to the first crash site, one company to the second crash site, and maintain a company there at the rally point to act as a reserve. So I went in to the first crash site, and I had Matt Ryerson and Mike Foreman with me a couple Delta operators and Glenn Ivory, who'd been in the unit. I he think was actually about he was with me initially, and then when I had Willie got injured on our way he, up he, there, he took him back and put him into the vehicle, and then then yeah. that's when they showed. So so Matt and Mike. Oh, I didn't know that. So he he came back. He came back in with you. Yeah, Glenn I didn't was with know me. that. So Glenn was a newly assigned medic, he's a special forces medic, so mm -hmm. phenomenal. Ended up being training. a unit operator, stellar yeah, he, dude. He went through selection uh, after that, but he's he's brand new to unit, doesn't know anybody. We don't know him. And we had told him, oh, nothing happens when we go out on these hits, you know. Oh, it's no big deal. <laughs> yeah. So you're Kyle the liar in his eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I was with a 10th Mountain Division company and and uh, two operators and a medic, and so we made our way to the crash site and I, I figured that uh, you know one of my main jobs is to prevent fratricide so thank God we were able to do that we didn't have any incidents of that and I uh, was in radio comms with Scotty Miller the ground force commander stopped the company about a two block distance short of where Scotty was so my RTO and I went up there met with him found out where people were then we were able to put the 10th Mountain Division in, fold in with the Rangers who were already there in the security position, and um, then we were able. Then we had the engineering problem of getting the two bodies out of that helicopter. So Mike Foreman actually carried in a quickie saw, and if you're not familiar with that, it's a big, heavy construction, basically a circular saw with a type of blade that'll cut through anything. As it turns out, anything but a Blackhawk body. So anything but magnesium. The, the yeah. quickie saw 
did not work. And, and well, we Matt Ryerson came in where we were at, and he had a he ended up with the quickie saw and a rifle. He had his car fifteen in one hand and a quickie saw. He's like, "Heard you guys need some help," and I'm like, <laughs> "Where did you come from?" You know what I mean? It was like, what well, Matt was like a guy you looked up to. He's this big farm boy, best shooter in the unit by far, Iowa farm boy. And he showed up, and he was just it was like my well, hero. Something you, know? you probably don't know. Uh, is we got bogged down, uh, took a lot of fire from the Olympic Hotel and rectified that situation, but by now we're stopped and inertia took over. So um, the company commander told me that the lead Malaysian APC didn't want to go forward. Mm. And uh, we were <laughs> dismounted, and so we're providing mutual support. And so company commander uh, is reluctant to go forward without the APC fire support. So this is pretty easy. I told Matt, get in that lead APC and make it go, and I'll go out in front of these infantrymen and make them go. So my job was easy. I said, let's go, and they they went. <laughs> I don't know what Matt Setter did, but that lead APC was rumbling right along beside me there. But what I would tell you is where we were, we could hear the ground. I mean, they're coming. They'll be here any minute now. Now you get that every tent. They'll be here any minute now. Because you can hear like, the fire coming well, that's what closer. It was just all of a sudden the fire would get louder, and you could hear them. I'd be like, God, I hope they stop firing at us before, <laughs> before they get here. You know, because I was worried. Well, yeah, and then you hear it fade away. Yeah, and then they come again, and there's you know this gunfight, rolling gunfight. And we're like, wow, what the heck is going on there? We we had no shortage of guys willing to pull the trigger. That's yeah. for sure. <laughs> when they uh, finally rolled in, the the one of the Malaysian APCs pulled in right in front of our windows. Yep. So we were kind of like, can you move that, please? Yeah, we can't see anything <laughs> anymore, you know. And and uh, oh, by the way, it's just going to suck up. I go, hey, you might want to. It was like one of those, and I moved finally moved back. To link up the rest of my platoon, so you know Doug yeah. and and we we loaded we loaded uh, Jamie onto the Malaysian APC and then just moved up a block. Basically went past where Earl got shot and then there were compound and that's where they we, were. We believed. Well, Woody and I. That's all I can probably speak for. We believed that we were going to jump in those vehicles and roll out of there. Well, I thought so too. And then all of a sudden, once all the dead and wounded were loaded, it's like, yeah, Yeah. not so fast. You're going to run out of there. And there's a lot of other things that happened throughout that night. You need to talk about the grenade incident. Because that was pretty darn funny. Yeah, that's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, we were in Patton's Tavern last night. I talked about this. When I I walked there to the uh, where the helicopter was down, one of our guys, Norm Hooten, was right there. And Norm and I had worked together for years, a superb operator. And uh, it's like when I met Scotty Miller, it's a hey, boss, it's a guy. It's like, you know, you meet him in the park on a Saturday afternoon or something. So I go there to where Norm is. He says, hi, boss. I said, hi, Norm. He says, watch out for the hand grenades. And I say what any normal human being would say. I said, huh? <laughs> he points down. There's like a dozen or more unexploded hand grenades laying around the alley there, right at the front of the helicopter. And then on cue, another one comes up over the wall. It's a very narrow alley. So it's, it's the width of a Blackhawk. It's got about an eight or ten foot wall there, and a grenade comes and lands right at my feet. And I look, and the spoon is still intact. The the pin is still in there. <laughs> I think, okay, sooner or later, this genius is going to figure out. He's going to read the instructions, or his cousin's going to come along and hit him on the head and show him how it works. <laughs> so I called a gunship in, literally, you know, eight feet away from us. And those guys are so good at what they do. You're not concerned about the danger close aspect. And uh, no more hand grenades after that moment. <laughs> I wonder if he wasn't smart enough to pull the pin or he wasn't strong enough. 
Well, he was strong enough to lob it over the wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and you know, and it was one of those things. So I, I just thought when those, uh, you know, after we loaded Jamie in there and I moved up, I go, the last place I want to be is in that APC. I was worried about, you know, who was ever was in there because you know, there were rockets shooting up that alley. I mean, that street yeah. all night long. Yeah. And uh, I got to tell you, riding in one of those APCs, which, you know, who among us thought they'd ever go into combat in the back of a Soviet armored personnel carrier, Soviet built, but um, you could hear the rounds plinking off the side and, and didn't even make a dent. So it's a pretty nice feeling until it's time to wow, get out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. no situational awareness. But uh, yeah, it was funny. So the 10th Mountain is folding away, and I remember they were screaming at each other. It's kind of like, hey guys, uh, you might want to get in here because there's, you know, they've been shooting RPGs up this alley. Da da da. There was a dude sitting in the street smoking a cigarette. Right, and which is oh, yeah, I didn't. But which he might want to get in here. It was kind of funny. It was kind of like that. All of a sudden, one whoosh. Next thing you had a whole platoon from yeah. the tenth mountain in, in our. Yeah. Told you. <laughs> yeah, and I think one other thing I'd like to add though about you know what mindset. So I think you have the mindset. You're like, we're going in. We're going to do a hit. You got combat mindset, whatever. But when you're the rescue force. The mindset, you know what's going on out there. You're, you're not like going into something that's going to escalate into a situation. But Lava and all those cats and the 10th Mountain guys, they're coming into, I mean, they're going to save our lives. Yeah, it's they're, already escalated. Yeah, it's already, yeah, it's, it's it's already there. And, and just to also, I don't know if you know, but you all, 10th Mountain lost a guy there too. And when we, got, when we finally did the Mogadishu Mile to run out at the end of the the next day or whatever, or the, or the middle of the next day or whatever time it was. Um, that's one thing, too. I had no perception of time during that whole thing. I didn't know. No, all, all I knew was in my head it was like, we're still having problems getting Cliff out. We're not going anywhere. We know that. But I, all I'm thinking is, God, I hope we do it still under darkness. Cause that's I do, what my, I, my I, main focus yeah. was. I kept thinking we have the, the advantage during night because we've got some Nas. we got the helos and... Gary Harrell was up in the C2 bird, kept saying, Lee, can you hurry it up? Can you hurry it up? And I said, we're going as fast as we can, Gary. And uh, I wanted to get out there during dark. As it turned out, you know, we're out there when the sun comes up, but it really didn't make any difference in the, in the long run. Um, but that was something that we all, I think, had that same internal exactly. clock going, Let, let's get this done. But we had a job to do. Fortunately, we weren't taking any casualties at that point in time because yeah. there, you know, we leave no man behind, but do you sacrifice 100, 200 living people to get two dead people out? That's, fortunately, I never had to make that call. We yeah. weren't taking care of Yeah, but I, that, that's a hard one. I mean, what would you, how would you leave? We couldn't. Yeah. And, and that's, well, it's like when we pulled in there with the APCs, um, we loaded up all the, the wounded, the, the guys who couldn't get out on their own, and some of them were on stretchers. And I was thinking, okay, do we need to get these guys out of here? But if I do, I know we'll never see the APCs again. It's hard enough to get them here in the first place. Yeah. So I talked to the senior medic, and he said they're all stabilized. They're all in a armored vehicle, so we're good. We can keep them here as long as we need to. So I was thankful for that. We didn't have, you know, if it was, yeah, we got three more femoral arteries that have been hit, and we got to get them out right now, then we would have had to get them out right now. But again, fortunately didn't have to make that call. We, when we came back, it ended up, this was after, after the fight there, you know, the things that came out of it, we did a CQB and Urban Ops working group and the top priority, you know, normally it'd be this gun, this ammo, this whatever we need. It was, we need this medical stuff to stop bleeding. And that's when um, 
oh what what was the first stuff called it Quick was clot? The, no, it was it that? was before that. It was the the uh, fibrin. It was it was fibrin. I guess is the clotting agent in your blood, and they had dehydrated fibrin. It looked like a little wafer. You'd break it up and you'd put it in the wound, and it would stop the bleeding. Very expensive because it's actually taking something that we make. Now they've got the uh, it's made from seashells. The the uh, combat gauze is. And all something to be aware of is when all of this stuff that we're talking about, the body armor that you wear today. The helmet that you wear today, the way your rifle's set up today, the way that we fight in the streets today, the way that you have a tourniquet, and you have uh, the combat gauze. The combat gauze, the way it's folded, it's not rolled, it's folded, so when you pull it out, it's an accordion fold, so it's not sticking your, to your hands. The stretchers. That come from Mogadishu. So, now, now I'm not saying that Mogadishu was it, the last fight we're ever going to have, because we've had a lot of crazy fights since then, but... Thank the good Lord that that happened so that we could be more prepared for the next fight that came going into Afghanistan, which I never served in Afghanistan, but Afghanistan and Iraq, I mean, those guys went on the battlefield with the lessons learned from Mogadishu. There were so many valuable lessons learned there. And well, urban assault vehicles right, came yeah. out of Mogadishu. We didn't yeah. have one. You know, what our combat load was, always carrying your nods. Who would think you would go out on a mission and not carry your nods? Now that sounds completely like you got mental issues, but, you know, we all didn't have our nods with us. We, uh, I had a two-quart canteen on the back of my belt, and I passed it around, and it was gone. And I don't know how much water you had, but... I had, I had one can, and I had two canteens, because I did just refilled all my water to make sure before we went, but, you know... But there was guys that didn't have any water. Mm -hmm. I had a two-quart, like I said, that you know, an old-fashioned two-quart passing around one time, and that's it. We had a guy, Tony Copper, we sent him to get water for us. He's going to go find a rain barrel and get gather some water. And we're like, where'd that guy go? He's, we we're pissed off because he never come back. <laughs> Next morning, we saw him doing the Mogadishu Mile, and he's got a neck brace on. He got hit by an RPG. And, uh, well, and Mace and Alex Zaghetti were in the back of uh, Stan Woods' helo. He came in and... Just imagine a Blackhawk hovering, creating a brownout over this dirt road because we, we desperately needed resupply. So this guy is hovering a Blackhawk that's getting shot from bullet both magnet. sides. Bullet <laughs> magnet. Yeah, yeah it, it was, was a bullet magnet. Hell. He's hovering there while two operators are in the back throwing out cans of ammo and water, and one of them got shot in the neck and went down. The other one yelled at him to get up and finish the job. All right. I know we could probably talk about this for another couple hours, but uh, we are we're winding down on time. So um, I want to thank you guys for you know telling all the stories, and I think there's some really important points. Let, uh, let me make one final yeah, point ahead, before sir. we wrap it up. Yeah, absolutely. We we alluded to this at the beginning. The the reporting the day after there were no journalists in Somalia was failed mission, debacle by elite unit, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. The fact is the mission was successfully accomplished, albeit with a tragic loss of life. So I want to make that point. And then um, I, I, I've seen different documentaries and stuff. Kyle was talking about the Mogadishu Mile. That's uh, basically where we dismounted that rally point, 800 meters in, 800 meters out. Mm -hmm. So Mogadishu Mile sounds better than Mogadishu 1,600-meter run. Um, <laughs> but nobody got left behind there. That, that point has been made because if you're in the back and you get the accordion effect and the vehicles are going at a faster pace and they turn accordion, you don't see them anymore, Okay, I just got left behind. But the fact is, we all made it to the rally point. I got an up from Larry and every other leader. All my people are here and accounted for. And that's when we loaded the vehicles up. So just one of those clarifying points. 
Well, on that, I want to, again, thank you, gentlemen, for talking about this. So thank you. You're thank welcome. You. Thanks. Hey, thanks for listening to The Spear. One last thing, if you aren't following MWI on social media yet, find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We are releasing new articles, podcast episodes, and research every day. And that is a great way to keep up to date on everything we're doing and to get in touch to give us feedback. All right, thanks again for listening.